this week on the Backtable Podcast. Or do I try something new and put a CRM in my office to start doing cases there? And I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. I'll, I'll shove it in the lunchroom. And I built what I called the, the Murphy bed, Angio Suite. Now, it turns out young folks don't know what Murphy beds are. I'm so sorry to admit that I do not know what that is. Could you please enlighten me? Yeah, so in an era earlier than mine, it was actually, imagine living in this puny New York apartment where you could barely walk in. Well, the bed would be thrown up against the wall on a hinge. And so at night, you pull your bed down. That's called a murky bed. And so it's, it's actually a way to make a room usable during the day and the bed's not in the way. So you could have an office, you could have an office table or whatever. So I called it my Murphy bed angio suite because we just said it shoved it a C arm into the old lunchroom. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Ranger drug-coated balloon from Boston Scientific is backed by exceptional clinical outcomes, consistently demonstrating one-year patency near 90% and the highest ever reported two-year patency for a DCB in a randomized controlled trial. To learn more about how Ranger can help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com forward slash ranger. That's R-A-N-G-E-R from Boston Scientific. BD provides clinical education and training through the BD Peripheral Intervention Advanced Healthcare Providers courses. The BD Advanced team offers programs on advanced endovascular management of AV access, emerging techniques in the management of CLTI and venous disease, as well as many different resident programs and peer-to-peer opportunities. Contact your local BD representatives to learn more or visit the BD Advanced webpage. Now, back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And my guest today is Dr. Bill Julian, interventional radiologist and president of South Florida Vascular Associates. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ali. Happy to be here. Happy to be a part of Backtable. Great. Our topic today is OBLs, past, present, and future. And I feel really honored to be able to talk to you about this, as you were one of the initial founders of an OBL in the United States. So before we get started, could you tell me a little bit about your practice today? So I've been in independent practice now for 21 years. So last year was a big year, our 20-year anniversary, South Florida Vascular Associates. And I spend about 99% of my time in my office. I am on staff at five hospitals, but rarely go there. Did it at AAA yesterday, but that's about every two months I go there. I spend most of my time doing what most people regard as fairly high-end endovascular, such as PAD, a lot of critical limb ischemia, a lot of embolization procedures, uterine embo, prostate embo, varicoceles, and we do a lot of superficial venous insufficiency. There's 31 employees and three providers, and so it's a pretty vigorous clinical practice and a lot of high-end procedures with not a lot of time spent at the hospital. That's a fantastic overview. So how many days a week would you say you're doing cases in your lab? COVID kind of changed things. We used to do five days a week in the procedure room, and I had some other people would help with the vein procedures. But for the last couple of years, I'm in the OR, meaning the interventional suite in the office, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and on Tuesdays, a busy vein day. We might do 18, 20 vein, vein procedures. 
every day of the week we're seeing patients with my three providers. We have three offices that all feed into the one office that has the interventional suites. And Friday is sort of a day when I might go to the hospital or have meetings with the staff, with my providers, and and we'll talk about any issues, maybe marketing, things that the insurance people have seen. So that's sort of a catch-up day. But on that day, too, is a full clinic day where we're seeing patients. So every day, the three providers are seeing patients and running a fairly busy practice. That sounds amazing. That sounds like a dream, actually. Could you tell me a little bit about your origin story and what prompted you to create one of the first OBLs in the country? I grew up in Indiana and age five moved to Arizona where I lived in northeastern Arizona just off the Navajo Indian Reservation and then late in school, not till late in my junior year, decided I was going to go to college and then returned to the Midwest where I did my bachelor's degree in medical school and then uh, re- internship and residency. And then I was part of the first interventional match in 91 and matched to the Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, where Dr. Katzen is, and so made the big trek from Minneapolis down to Miami. In Minneapolis, I worked with some interventional greats, Kurt Amplatz, Willie Castaneda, Dave Hunter, and Willie helped set me up to go down to Baptist, and there my mentors were Katzen and Becker and Beninati and Jerry Zemmel. And it was a lot of focus on high-end procedures, clinical work, when I finished in 92, I planned to go, I had a job lined up in Seattle, which for me was like, I was in Minneapolis for five years. It was like Minneapolis on the water. And that was, that was a cool dream. And then at the 11th hour, I got a phone call that the, of course it was a radiology group. The partners had decided I wouldn't be able to do full time. Like they had promised me I'd be about 80% interventional. And I went bananas. And if you knew me, you'd know why I, w- I went bananas. So that fell apart. And then, so it was kind of late. It was like April uh, when that happened. Well, okay. Quick question about that. So had you negotiated to have 100% interventional with that Seattle group? I had. And that was abnormal at the time, or was that pretty par for the course for IR jobs? There were some jobs like that, but a lot of them, I think what was unusual was my insistence on it, that that's that's what I really wanted. I didn't want to be a film reader because I'm an interventionalist. And I didn't, to me, there were incompatible. And so, and that's what I was promised. I turned down other jobs. The top job in Minneapolis I had been offered and I turned that down and and a couple others I don't recall right now. So that changed my course. Imagine you're going to go to the corner of the Pacific, to the Pacific Northwest, and instead you stay in the Southeast corner of the United States. So I always kind of marvel at how that one phone call sort of changed my life. Yeah. All right. So, so you decided not to go to that group in Seattle. So what happened next? Well, there was a couple guys that wanted to form a group and start a new radiology group, and they couldn't do it because they didn't have an interventionalist. So I got a call, and almost within a week or two, went up and interviewed as the interventionalist and became an important founding member of this group. You know, July 5th, we started our own radiology group at a somewhat crappy little hospital called Plantation General, and there I worked on what I call the barium enema room, for about six months before I uh, had a real angio suite. It was, uh, it was a room that had fluoro, a puck, like the, it's, gosh, they had a cassette, a big, huge cassette that the films, the old style films would, would put in. It's like a magazine on a gun. You'd stick it in the, in the machine and you'd, when you hit the pedal, it'd go boom, 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 boom. It would, it would, do, it would take pictures, like say every half second, those pictures would get sent into the film room where each one was developed 
into a x-ray. So you'd have an x-ray of your angiograms. And if you wanted to get fancy, you would have one of the texts would subtract it. So that was like the early digital subtraction where you subtract it. So that's where I did my initial procedures. In fact, I, I'll tell you a funny story. My, the year before I got to Baptist, 1991 was the first year they did a few tips. And my year was the first full year. I did like thir- 36 tips. And it was only UCSF and a Baptist. So I came out with a lot of experience. Even though I was at a crummy little hospital, I got sent a fair number of patients. And I remember telling Gary Becker, I said, uh, Gary, I think I have the largest experience of tips on the barium enema table in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so Unpublished data, doing tips on a barium enema table. <laughs> right. It made it a, little more cha- a little more challenging. We were in that group and things were going pretty well. We got two more contracts within a few years. And I, because of an untimely death of one of the partners, it w- I was the vice president of the group, but I was the head of the interventional. But there were storm clouds, and those two storm clouds were one my senior partner wanted to sell to Sheridan. So my old group is actually the current Envision group that started way back, way back then. And I didn't want to sell. I wanted to focus on the people in the group, and and so there was a disagreement there. But also there was just the whole fundamental disagreement on. DR and IR. Now, my senior partner, he actually, he and I both agreed totally on that. We wanted to break the group in half, but the hospital wasn't ready for that. They wanted to have it all under one umbrella, so they only had to talk to one person. So I ultimately left in 2001, and with a lot of work and a lot of effort, formed South Florida Vassar Associates. And the, the biggest hurdle there is the hurdle that everybody still has many years later. What is that? 22 years later, same problem after several decades, which is getting on staff at a hospital because the radiology groups block you with their pseudo-exclusive contract. So that was a remarkable feat. Oh, I definitely want to get into that. What did you do once you arrived at the hospital? So I subleased an office from a general surgeon, which I'm very thankful for, Dr. Wiseman. He was a great guy. And the only functioning angio suite that was in the hospital, which is one of the reasons I was able to get on staff there, was some ORC arms. So initially for a few months... I had used ORC arms while the new angio suite was being built. And that kind of limited what I could do. But ultimately, I got pretty busy. I was able to get on staff in part because of a aggressive CEO who wanted to get me on staff to get a lot of cases. But she was equally aggressive on getting other people on staff like surgeons and the cardiologist. And so it wasn't before too long that the room was packed with people and I was having to do cases at night and on the weekends. And what became obvious was I wasn't going to be able to sustain this with the hours I was working, and I certainly would never be able to hire one, anyone, and I wouldn't, I couldn't get on staff, as proud as I was as getting on staff at one hospital, I couldn't reproduce it. It was very frustrating to me that my untrained surgeons, when I say untrained, they're trained in cutting, but had never done any endovascular. They could go to any hospital they wanted in the community and do endovascular cases, my cases, basically, and I couldn't get on staff, so I was stuck there and I was left with a very difficult choice. You know, do I just quit medicine? Do I join a radiology group, which you can imagine how unappealing that would be to me? Or do I try something new and put a CRM in my office to start doing cases there? And I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. I'll, I'll shove it in the lunchroom and I built what I call the, the Murphy bed angio suite. Now, it turns out young folks don't know what Murphy beds are. I'm so sorry to admit that I do not know what that is. Could you please enlighten me? Yeah, so 
in an era earlier than mine, it was actually, imagine living in this puny New York apartment where you could barely walk in. Well, the bed would be thrown up against the wall on a hinge. And so at night, you pull your bed down. That's called a murky bed. And so it's, it's actually a way to make a room usable during the day and the bed's not in the way. So you could have an office, you could have an office table or whatever. So I called it my Murphy bed angio suite because we just sort of shoved in a C-arm into the old lunchroom. So I started in September 2001 with the general surgeon, but within a year, moved to my own office, started a vein practice in 2002, which was the first outpatient one in South Florida. In, in, uh, South Florida. And then March 2005 is when I built the angio suite, put it in the lunchroom while we were building a more formal office for an angio suite. So, Dr. Julian, did you know of any other places in the United States that had angio suites in the office before you started building yours? As far as I know, it was it was one of the first, if not the first. I had my friend Jerry Niedzwiecki came online about the same time. He was having similar but different issues with his group, and he and I uh, talked. And there was a few other folks around the country that shortly thereafter also did this, a similar kind of thing. And what was remarkable was my initial vision was it was just going to offload some of the easy cases like fish to the grams. But what happened fairly rapidly was I saw how efficient it was. It was fun. Patients liked it there. And there was the repeated daily irritation of issues at the hospital, like getting bumped for some non-emergent case or the politics and or not having stock or the staff. And so Within a year, I was probably doing 70%. Within two years, 80%. Three years, 90%. And within a few years, I basically was spending my, all my time there. And the last decade or so, I've spent 99% of my time in the office. And we have a new, a new place, an 8,000-square-foot place that we moved into, not really new, 2009, that's a pleasure to be in. And it's remote from the hospital. I initially wanted to be on hospital grounds I thought I would like that, but it turns out I really wanted to be as far away as I could from the hospital so that you don't have those evil humors of the hospital nearby or the scrutiny. It seeps through somehow, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Were you worried at all about getting your cases reimbursed when you started doing them in the OBL since that model hadn't been available before? Sure, that was a big deal. But what is interesting was shortly after, I felt like someone was watching out for me, shortly thereafter, CMS started approving more and more and more things. You know, for a long time, we didn't get stent reimbursement. There was never any atherectomy reimbursement. And so, but just over time, I think they recognized the benefit of an office interventional suite and how you could practice very high quality care at a much lower price point than the hospital and have much higher patient satisfaction. Okay. So it sounds like 2009 onward, you've been in your current location. Any major updates between 2009 and now? As to your practice? Well, we have the three offices. They all feed into the one main office. And, you know, I've had some colleagues along the way who've come and gone and spent some good time with them. We've done a lot of courses in the office. Folks have come in for courses we've done to, they want to see how an office interventional suite works, but they also want to learn some PAD procedures. So we've done a lot with Cook and CSI and orbital atherectomy. A lot of things changed with COVID. Everything kind of shut down and we sort of regrouped. And so right now we're, I would say, pretty much completely post-COVID and the, the procedures have changed a lot. I used to do an enormous amount of dialysis work that changed when there was phys physician-owned, nephrology-owned access centers. And so I do very little of that except for a friend surgeon of mine. I do a couple a week for him, some special cases like ischemic steel 
but your routine dialysis stuff I don't do. It's mostly what I mentioned before that we, we spend our time on. That sounds like a very fulfilling practice and a very fulfilling uh, case set. Is there anything else that you would like the audience to know kind of about? I'm calling it your origin story, which makes me feel like you're a superhero a little bit. So if you like turn into the Hulk halfway during this podcast, I won't be surprised at all. <laughs> but uh, is there anything else that you want the audience to know kind of about your transition from being a hospital or a hospital-based IR in a private practice group to running your own OBL? I think some of it will come out as we talk about other issues, but the dynamics changed tremendously. For instance, at my primary hospital where there's actually been like five radiology groups. An important concept to remember is when you're independent, you're a lot like a vascular surgeon or interventional cardiologist or general surgeon. You, you're your own company and the hospital-based groups can come and go and it doesn't have anything to do with you. You also, I don't answer to the hospital and I don't answer to radiology group. You know, radiology group doesn't have my best interest in mind, and they have to answer to the hospital. They're concerned about their contract. They're, they're not concerned about my patient care and my interventional procedures. And so it's nice to be able to do what I think is best for the practice for my patients and not answer to these other people who don't share that, that interest, that focus. I was at a conference recently, a multidisciplinary conference, and I was talking to some vascular surgeons and interventional cardiologists and they were just kind of so blown away by the fact that diagnostic groups don't want us to be doing cases. They want us to be in the seats reading studies. And the more cases we say yes to in the hospital, the worse it is for the list, especially right now when everybody's list all over the country is super insane. And that that's actually disincentivized as an interventionalist. That, that just blew their mind as other clinicians that practice uh, in the endovascular sphere. I think the purchasing of groups by the venture capitalist and the focus on profit in our views is a whole new dynamic that we didn't see coming. And that's really, I think, you know, brought out some of those issues you just mentioned even further. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions, Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash Symphony Suite. Let's talk about the involvement of our national societies in helping sustain practices such as yours. You have been an outspoken critic about this subject. Could you give me a little bit of background? Well, so the society I'm most proud of is the OEIS, which is the Outpatient Endovascular and Interventional Society. And it's a society made up of cardiologists, interventional cardiologists, surgeons, and interventional radiologists, a multidisciplinary society that focuses on outpatient vascular care, primarily the office interventional suite and ASCs. And it's having its 10-year anniversary this year. Our annual meeting will be in May 2023 in Orlando. It's the only society that focuses on what some people's you know, biggest investment is, which is their office. And the things that we focus on are how to open one. It starts at the beginning, and we talk about best strategies in the office, best practices, some new procedures you might want to integrate. There's marketing lectures. There's a whole legal session going on. We have some webinars that have been going on all year, and there's going to be a legal legal session. 
and there's a registry. And so it's a nice place to have like-minded people and talk to them about their successes and failures and, and learn. Now, my other society is our, my parents' society, the SIR, which I've been a member since I finished in 92. I finished my training in 92. And I think they've done a good job on certain things like the annual meeting, holding meetings throughout the year, helping you get your CME. They've done a great job with the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the one thing they have done a very poor job, I would say a failing job, is that every single person that comes out of IR training is starting with a big barrier, and that's getting on staff at hospitals. Getting on staff at hospitals is the most important currency a proceduralist, a surgeon, basically has. And every single specialty in the United States that does procedures just automatically can get on staff and they don't have to talk about it or think about it or convince someone. They just walk through the door. The worst trained cardiologist, someone that you would be embarrassed to read about their credentials, they can get on staff anywhere. And the best trained blue chip IR can't. It's a battle royale. Now, I must have a five hospitals. I had to fight to get on into each one, but it's not fair. You should have to spend money. It's a barrier. You know, people can't fight, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars when they're a one person group and against a radiology group. And so the SIR has recognized this as a problem. And I helped develop a white paper back in, it's a position paper on exclusive contracting. First draft came out in 2007. Then there was an update 2015. And I'm told there is an approved one as of 2022. But basically it just says, if hospital staffs are open to other specialties doing interventional procedures, then independent IR should be able to do it. And the SIR recognized this and in their strategic plan of 2018 to 22, they actually put it as the number one goal. So it says, IR physicians will thrive in their chosen practice model, leading to expanded access to high quality care. So that strategic plan was 2018 to 22, and really very little has changed in the last two decades. Now, the, the reason it hasn't changed is because the constituency of the society is basically academic IRs and interventional radiologists and hospital-based radiology groups. And so the decision-making isn't by independent IRs. And a lot of people want to, once they're in these groups, they just want to keep things as they are. But the ACR, they came up with their own position paper too. And so last year, I'll just read it to you here. Exclusive contracts could also inadvertently exclude independently practicing interventional radiologists while not excluding other specialists who may offer similar services to the independent IR. Therefore, any exclusive contract should be worded so as not to inadvertently exclude an independently practicing IR, blah, blah, blah. These two big societies have essentially stated, you know, their position. But what's happened effectively across the United States is really unchanged. The only gains have been by folks like myself who's fought these battles. The poor young IR coming out is up against a barrier. Choice really is join an academic group or a hospital-based group. And the flaw with the hospital-based groups is that most of them don't care about an office. They care about their contract and RVUs, and they will, when you're not doing cases, they expect you to read films. And that's not the recipe for success. So if, if you're a medical student and you want to join a radiology group and do that, 
do procedures, read films, do procedures, read films, then that's okay. But if you want to go out and have a vigorous clinical practice, you're in trouble. And it's, it wouldn't be what I would, I would choose a different specialty if that's really your choice, unless things change and they just haven't really changed. There hasn't been the motivation to change. So if you, what's just incredible is that any specialty, so a neurosurgeon could do neuroendovascular, neurologist do endovascular, cardiologist do all the surgical procedure, all the endovascular procedures, triple A's, PAD, venous thrombectomy, whatever they want to do. If, they, if it's interesting or glamorous or pays well, number one, then that specialty is going to take it over. And the IRs generally lose out because they, they're not in a position to thrive because they, they don't have an office and they don't see patients. And so they're, they're kind of mostly getting the leftovers. If they, what I've always said is, you know, Kavi Devalapali has been on your podcast a few times. He has a, one of his blogs, Line Monkey MD. If you, if you Google Line Monkey MD trash, you'll read about his article where he says the modern hospital interventionist is essentially a trash collector. That has been a pretty controversial blog post by Covey. And I think, I think there's a lot of people who agree with it. And there's a lot of people who are in kind of thriving hospital-based IR groups who think that it might have been a little bit harsh. Okay, so can I, can I play devil's advocate for just one second about the exclusivity contrast? And this is not my personal opinion, but this is something that I've heard from other folks. So what is the benefit to a hospital-based IR of letting another interventional radiologist who's independent come in and take up cath lab time, take up their nursing staff and their techs to do outpatient cases that reimburse well, while they are the ones that have to manage a lot of the inpatient stuff that doesn't reimburse well or isn't challenging or interesting? I think there's a couple ways to look at it. First of all is the legal aspect, which is if it's open to everybody, it should open to everybody. There's no exclusivity at all. The problem is no one's really challenged this in court yet because the people fighting it don't have the financial wherewithal to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. So right now, the reason they're having to read films is because the things they do pay so poorly, their RVUs are so low, and they can't be as efficient as someone clicking a mouse to read films. So they should tell the hospital, look, everybody is on staff doing what used to be our procedures. We understand we have an exclusive diagnostic imaging contract. If you want us to cover the IR... We're happy to, but we need to be reimbursed for this. We should have a professional service agreement for this. They somehow think by blocking the Bill Julians of the world that they're going to have a thriving practice. That is total bullshit because what happens is the other specialists are better competitors. Even if they're not as well-trained, they're better competitors and they take all the good cases. And by me not being there, other people like me, it doesn't mean they get it. They've lost. They're, they've already lost. Now, I want to acknowledge you did say something important. There are some good groups around the country that have vigorous clinical practices and that do a lot, but those are a minority. When I look at the 69 hospitals down here, I can't tell you one single hospital-based radi- interventional group uh, that's, that's doing high-end cases. They're basically, they're just frustrated. And after a while, they give in and they just read films. I want to tell you two stories about, there's two young IRs who recently graduated and are down here. I met them, they're really nice, but they're in one of these corporate groups one of them is at a hospital where he was told day one, you are not allowed to do PAD. Now, this, this new IR trained at a PAD place. He's talented. That's what his interest is. But at this major hospital, he's not allowed to do it because they're all supposed to go to the surgeon. And the reason they know this is the CEO came to the head of IR and said, hey, um, no PAD. That all goes to so-and-so surgeon. I'm going to guess that the surgeon is hospital-employed and RV-based probably. 
Yes, there's multiple surgeons through the years who have been through there. They finally found the one that stuck. I'd applied to this hospital a long time ago, and I was turned down because of the exclusive contract. Imagine an exclusive contract. They're not even doing the work now, and they still would say it's an exclusive contract. The other young IR that I was going to tell you about, he's aggressive. He's probably like I would be. He, he tries to do cases and fight for them. But he, since he has no office, some of his patients come to me for follow-up because they go back to the primary and the primary is like, well, um, okay, go see your, this guy. And they're like, well, he doesn't have an office. I called the hospital. So I'm seeing their patients. So basically I'm taking over. I'm not even, I'm not trying to compete with him, but uh, there'll be triple A's that are done by an IR at the hospital. They have no way to follow up. So, so the patients will come to me and they're working as hard as they can just to get a few crumbs. I, I call it finding an unopened ketchup packet in the garbage. They found a good case. So they're so excited about it. Sad. That's uh, that's really sad for somebody to come right out of practice and be faced with that struggle. I'm going to guess that in both of those scenarios that the other IRs in each of those groups are not particularly supportive to have those those younger IRs develop a clinical practice. Oh, they there's no clinical practice. The, the most they can do is to write a note in a chart. That would be about they could they they can't do a consult. They might do a phone consult like for a UAE. And think about the ethics of doctors, IRs around the country doing significant procedures on patients they haven't met, they weren't involved in the decision-making, they'll never see again. I think Joint Commission would find that shocking if they, if they knew how that was being practiced. So people spent decades now with lectures saying, this is how you convince your radiology partners. And I, I always thought, well, that's really silly. Why are you wasting your time? Just go do your own thing. But it's really all about choice. Like in the strategic plan, you should be able to choose what you want to do. If you want to join a radiology group and be the IR there and you're happy, great, knock yourself out. But if you want to go out and do the hard work of opening an office and hanging a shingle and building a clinical practice and office interventional suite, why can't you do that? And some people say, well, just go do that. Well, in most states, in order to have an office suite, you have to have hospital privileges. And in Florida, either hospital privileges or a transfer agreement. And if you can't get hospital privileges, you can't open an office suite. So you're basically boxed out. And, and, and so it's, it's just an, an enormous problem. If you don't have hospital privileges, but you have a transfer agreement, can you just do that? And then yes. make an agreement with the IRs at a hospital that, to take care of any kind of inpatients that you might have? Or There's usually no agreement. They just get sent there to the hospital. And then the IRs or vascular surgery or whoever, the IRs don't usually take care of it. It's the vascular surgeons because the IRs don't see those the PAD. It's mostly the vascular surgeons. And there may be some bad blood. I would say that most interventional radiologists want hospital privileges. They want to be able to see their patients if they go to the hospital and take care of them. They don't really like the idea of somebody else doing it, but if you're blocked, what are you going to do? And it's nice to have good relationships with people. Uh, I have some, there's occasionally times I have a patient that I worked on or something and they might show up in the hospital and somebody else gets consulted and they might call me and I, I'm like, I'm not could you take care of this or could you do this? And, and uh, just because I may be too involved and fortunately I have pretty good relationships, but you'd rather be on staff and have that option. But if you can't, that that's an issue. There are certain states like North Carolina and Texas that don't require privileges or transfer agreement, but you know, that's not ideal. Most, most of us would rather be able to see our patients or maybe respond to a consult. Another issue is a lot of states, I think Washington State is one, 
where you can't get on insurance plans if you don't have hospital privileges. They use that as sort of a, a litmus test of your qualifications. And so if you haven't gotten a stab at a hospital, then you haven't really qualified to be on an insurance plan. So there's, there's lots of things that happen by not being able to have a hospital privileges. And it's, it's a big deal. I'll, I'll tell you a couple other stories. I got called by someone in Austin recently, and they can't get on staff. This is an in, someone who wants to be independent. They can't get on staff at a single hospital in the metropolitan area of Austin. Another doc in uh, North Florida foolishly opened, built an office interventional suite without having hospital privileges. And so essentially, he then tried to get them or get a transfer agreement. He went to 13 hospitals, which covered a big geographic area because it's not super populated. And he couldn't go down staff. And so Jerry Nietzsche and myself went to the Florida Board of Medicine meeting and supporting him through the, through the OAIS. And we talked about the problem. It just so happened at that meeting, for a different reason, there was hospital executives from a number of the big companies there. And we convinced the board to form a work group to investigate it. And that alarmed the executives. And come, come Monday morning, our friend magically got a phone call saying he could have a transfer agreement at one of the hospitals. Wow. So you're like, you're like a guardian angel. You're like the, IR, the independent IR guardian angel. <laughs> that, well, I, my point is that people have to work enormously hard just to get out of the starting gate, something with an vascular surgeon and a cardiologist wouldn't. And, and that's unconscionable, especially that we have IR residencies, all the talk about clinical practices. That's something that should have been resolved decades ago. So what's the path forward for SIR or ACR to, to make this right? You know, I gave a lecture a few years ago. This is a hilarious lecture titled at the SIR annual meeting on how to get on staff at a hospital. Now, the reason that's funny is I'd be embarrassed for any other specialty to know that I gave that talk because it's like giving a talk on having a clinical practice. It's such a given that you have a clinical practice. It's such a given that you can get on staff. Nobody would ever talk about it. They wouldn't even think to talk about it. That's that's how weird it is that this specialty is still having these issues. So what can SIR do to help solve this problem of getting folks on, on staff or working in clinical practices? One of them is they could identify which states don't require hospital privileges like Texas and North Carolina. So maybe people are going to, because once you're in a state and you bought a house and you're moved in, you kind of got roots there. It's a little harder to move. So if you come to Florida, you know, you have these barriers to, to doing this. I think fellows and residents can rotate through office interventional suites, start learning about them. One of the issues is as someone who trained a while ago and did a lot of PAD and does a lot of PAD, it's kind of alarming to me that I hear they're not doing any PAD except when they rotate for a month with the surgeons. That seems so bizarre. As time goes on, anything that is considered good will be taken over by other specialties if they're doing all the clinical work. And so it's like interventional develops the procedures and then everybody takes them away because they've always been focused on the procedure, not on the patient. And so I think it'd be good for the trainees to rotate through, but also to get training. They do tons of training. It's just the way the training programs are set up. They don't want, they, they actually want someone like me to pay for their training when I'm like, as if I'm getting reimbursed by the government. And, you know, of course, we're not going to pay for their training. We're willing to do it. We should have OBL sessions at the SIR, like it's been done, yeah, like they did this year. But we should have how to get on staff lectures. The I think the SIR needs to be honest with medical students. If you want to do independent practice, the interventional radiology is not the way to go. 
you need to do, go into something else because until they fix those, it's really, it's not appropriate to sell a medical student on a clinical practice when 90% of the jobs out there are do trash procedures, read films. It, until this is solved, as an aside, think about the people who make the decisions in the, on the executive committee. They're all academics or there's one private practice counselor right now and that person's in a radiology group. So there's no one who's talks about independent IR. And I would say the independent IRs are mostly the kind of people who can carry the banner into battle and make the society proud and be very vigorous consultants in your community. These are the kind of people we need out there. So do you think that the SIR should be actively recruiting independent IRs into their leadership? I think they need to have a lot more people involved. Once someone's in a radiology group and they give up after a few years and they become a partner, then they're part of the problem because they're going to resist having anybody else on staff and they have these golden handcuffs on. They're not, their spouse isn't going to let them pick up roots and go somewhere and open an office suite because now you have a mortgage and kids are in school. They're just kind of, they're just kind of set for life. I do think that um, a lot of people who talk about their clinical practice in a radiology group, once these companies come in and they want more RVUs and they have less time for clinic, they're becoming unhappy and a lot of them are going to leave, but they're not going to have places to go because then they're going to realize the problem. They won't be able to go anywhere either because every single hospital in a community can be restricted by these radiology groups. Whereas, you know, like I've said a million times, all the other specialties can get into all these hospitals. Some steps the SIR could take. So one is like you just mentioned changing the leadership. So there's more representation by independent IRs, not just one person, which Mary Costantino was independent, but she's no longer on the com committee. I think you could showcase successes of people who've done this at the annual meeting on some of the wire and, and some other things. The society could fund an amicus brief on the legalities of these pseudo-exclusive contracts and help with... Sorry, you're going to have to dumb that down for me a little bit. How would What is an amicus brief and how would that help? So when there's court cases going on, like say at the Supreme Court, an amicus brief is a, a legal brief supported financially by some particular group that has a certain belief. Like let's say there's a lot of abortion talk right now. So there's going to be people who are going to say why a particular law should be passed or why a particular law shouldn't or is illegal or illegal. So they'll give free advice in the form of this legal brief of why. So the SIR would say, we think that the idea of an exclusive contract doesn't work when every specialist is able to get on staff except for one group, independent IRs. If it's everybody can get on, everybody should be able to get on. You can't discriminate against one person. And they would give that sort of argument. They would have to show leadership and say, these are the kind of people, who, who do we want as a future interventional radiologist? Do we want people who are doing paracentesis and thoracentesis and pick lines and then read films? Or do we want people who are going to be focused on clinical care and high-end procedures? And if we've advertised that we're going to let people practice the way they want to practice, how can you block this large group of people? We're reneging of what we promised all these medical students and residents coming in, that they would be able to practice high-end clinical work, and, and they should be able to do it any way they want. So let me just say that if we've been doing this for 20 years, there would be so many different models out there, and you could learn from everyone. I'll come back to Ask Me Later, 
what I think an ideal future model will be, and I'll tell you then. But I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm losing my focus on steps the SIR could take. So no problem. That happens with these, yeah. The SIR could, if they wanted, I don't see this happening. They could fund a lawsuit, and once you get the case law in, that would be very helpful for other people who could quote that case law. Now, the most possibly the most radical one. This is not my idea because even for me, it seemed a little radical, but I actually kind of like it. So I've shown you now what the policy, the position paper of both the SIR and the um, ACR is, which is if you have, if it's open to everybody, it should be open to everybody, including and specifically interventional radiologists. In the uh, ACR one, it specifically says your contract should not be worded so as to block them. And that's specifically the reason their contracts are worded that way. So my friend suggested this, which is terminate their SIR membership if they're not following these guidelines. Now, you may say, well, that's like three quarters of the society, which it could be, but it would point out an obvious discriminatory problem that's going on and it's hurting the society. So those would be my suggestions of what the SIR could do. I don't think they did a very good job in their strategic plan. Their most important goal was not met. And there's been little tiny increments by individuals in their, in their own geographic area, not by any help from the National Society. What do you think about when academic leaders who produce these Navy SEAL IRs, what do you think happens when they see them out in the community and they're maybe not having the most fulfilling careers? Well, I think either they don't understand the problem or maybe they don't care. Maybe they just think they're in their ivory tower and whatever happens out there happens out there. But most of the academic people I know are good people. They worked hard to, to train people. You think they would be proud to find out that a lot of their trainees go out and build vigorous clinical practices, that they would be disheartened when they find out a lot of them are collecting trash and reading films, collecting trash, reading films. I think that if they knew that some of the things going on in the country, namely these pseudo-exclusive contracts are hurting them, I think they might care more. And they would tell their trainees, look out for this. These are the things we need to do. What can we do as a society to help support these people so they can practice as they see fit? And so that 10 years from now, we interventional is a very vigorous practice and they're the go-to consultants in people's communities, as opposed to just being part of radiology groups. Some of them are great, but most of them are just working on their RVUs, reading films, doing little things around the hospital. That's totally fair. Okay, well, let's let's shift gears a little bit and tell me what you think that the ideal future model is going to be. Traditionally, IR has been tied to radiology. And so the, the problem with any procedural specialty, whether it's general surgery or vascular surgery, is that the professional fees in a hospital, it's hard to pay your bill. So that's why a lot of people are employed by hospitals or other systems, because they'll help fund you. And when the radiology group is covering IR, IR is not allowed to, to get any additional funding. And so the revenue IR generates is pitiful. And so that's why they read films. So I think it would make more sense if IR was separate from DR, then the modern IR group could be centered, number one, have an office interventional suite and your clinical practice where you see lots of patients you focus on whatever you want to develop, PAD, fibroids, prostates, veins, but you can also cover the hospital with a professional service agreement. And that would mean you get reimbursed for all the call time. You would have funding for nurse practitioners or PAs or whoever's going to help you do a lot of the things that 
nobody else wants to do, the low-paying stuff. There's no reason as a super-trained IR that you need to be doing the thoras and the paras and the biopsies and the tunneled catheters. You could have someone else do that, but you need you need to be able to be funded for that. So you could have a large professional service agreement that would allow coverage of the hospital. So then you would have a relationship with your patients there at the hospital that would help. I think people would like to be able to help their community out, do these, do higher end procedures, but cover the service. It would help the hospital. So I think that would be the core is having your office interventional suite as well as a hospital coverage. In the office suite, remember you generate revenue also from the E&M coding, the vascular lab where you do all your studies. So I think that's potentially a future model, but also keep in mind that there's a lot of models out there that, that could be developed and could get fleshed out given the option of a lot of people around the country being able to practice. It's definitely a complex problem. I'm thankful that there's people like you who have been fighting this for a long time. Do you mind sharing that anecdote that you told me about, about you kind of talking about this at an IR meeting several years back and how, how it was received? So in 2004, Jerry and I attended the business meeting at the SIR meeting, which just coincidentally was in Phoenix, Arizona. So this year it was in Phoenix, Arizona. 19 years ago, Jerry and I stood up at the business meeting and we said, we actually positioned ourselves on opposite sides of the auditorium. There were thousands of people in the audience and we each spoke separately, but basically said that independent IRs were having trouble getting on staff at hospitals where other specialists were doing the same procedures that we were asking to do. And we needed leadership to help us solve this problem. There was a substantial boo that emanated from the thousands of people in the audience. And what that told us in this mob was that people were happy with their pseudo exclusive contract where they, they were losing all their procedures, but somehow by blocking Jerry and I and others, that was going to be good for them. And there, I think a lot more people realize the problem now with these contracts, especially the ones who've left radiology are now trying to get, are trying to work. But to some, I don't know, I wasn't at the business meeting this year. I only went for one day, but I'd like to think they didn't boo us this time, but I, I don't know what, I think the sentiment might be changing, but it, it doesn't speak well to society that a large group of the people didn't want independent IRs succeeding. Well, I mean, the good news is there's a lot more discourse around this problem and there's a lot more platforms like such as Backtable where people can get their voices heard. So I think it's only going to be a matter of time until the right people are brought to the table and can have a discussion and figure out the right steps forward. And I'm I'm very appreciative of folks like you, Mary Constantina as well, and other independent IRs who, who kind of fight this fight and also help us learn that this practice model is available and works. You did mention uh, one thing that I want to echo, and that is that podcasts and blogs that are not run by societies, they can, you can't slander people, but you can say your opinion and you're not going to get shut down. You know, there was years ago, I used to post, if you Google my, if you search my name on the SIR Connect, you'll see dozens of posts that I did six to, I don't know what, 12 years ago. But, you know, there would be complaints about people, you know, they would, they could take down your posts. They would say you're bullying. And that's governed by society. So now there's a lot of other venues where you're going to get information. And if you want to get it out there, you know, Backtable is one, Cobby's blog. Maybe I'll do my own thing one of these days. So that's actually... Yes, and all the free time you, you have, I'm sure. That sounds great. 
but it, it certainly is very nice to be asked to come here and, and share my point of view. And I don't think I'll ever, even though I'm on staff with all the hospitals I need, I feel like it's in my DNA that I have to fight for all the young IRs coming out that they should be given equal footing. It's just really, it's I don't feel you know, right about that what they're having to fight against. So let's end on a on a on a hopeful note, okay? What advice do you have for young IRs that are looking to expand in the outpatient setting? So I would get as much experience as possible doing procedures. You don't want to go into an outpatient setting naive. And even if you're a superstar, you've got mistakes to make. And that's how you learn. That's not bad. It's just how you learn. And you don't want to do that on your own. And you want to be able to understand how to fix your mistakes. So you got to have a lot of experience. You need probably for a star, two years, maybe three or four. So get a lot of experience, but also understand and find some way to get your clinical practice. If that means having to call people for UAE consult or see them on the floor, see them in the bare minimum room, whatever it is, get mentors. There's mentors out there who will talk to you and give you guidance. There's, it's a lot more out there than when I did this, but understand you need to be the best clinician and be technically good as well to thrive, but also you got to be strategic. And, you know, if you're going to make sure you don't, your restrictive covenants are not too far, like you don't want to have a whole city that you can't go across the other side of the city. If you quit, you need to start scouting out. You need to listen to my old lecture on how to get on staff at a hospital and plan what you're going to do. It's also going to, you could join someone and that's fine, but it's also going to cost a lot of money. It's a big investment. You're basically building like an ASC, but it's super gratifying and you kind of control your old destiny. You have to have an entrepreneurial spirit and you have to have big gonads to, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges and notice I use neutral gender there. Gender neutral gonads. Got it. <laughs> well, if you had to do, if you had to do, you know, your whole career over again, what would you do differently? Wow. I kind of sprung that one on you, but I was just thinking about it. It's just been such an amazing career so far, but I feel like we can learn from the things you did. I will wait for my next podcast to have a good answer to that. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> well, um, Dr. Julian, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. You are such an inspiration. I've honestly learned quite a bit just from the few conversations we've had. One thing I learned from you is that you really value life outside medicine as well. That's come across definitely in, in our conversations and in our in our chats. So thanks for thanks for putting that out there too. No, Ali, it's been a pleasure. I hope what I had to say resonated with some folks, maybe helps young ARs get on staff independently and helps helps the society. That's my goal is to help medicine, help IRs, help patients. As I getting closer to the end of my career than I am the beginning, I just wanna be able to do what I can to um, help inspire some young folks and help them along their pathway. Dr. Julian, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure, thank you, Allie. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 